complete our study in Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, so we're titling this message today, uh, Is There Any Hope? Nehemiah chapter 13. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Lord God, we thank you for this uh, Sunday morning and the ability to be in your house again and uh, gather before you, Lord, and uh, just worship you and all uh, glory and honor goes to you, Lord. And so we pray this morning that uh, you would help us finish this study well, Lord, that we would take away the lessons that you would have us know. And Lord, that we would glorify your son, Jesus Christ, today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may have heard the proverb, when the cat's away, the mice will play, right? You know that proverb? It means that when the one who is in authority uh, happens to be out for whatever reason, that's the cat. Well, the mice, well, they go and often do whatever they do because their authority figure uh, has left. And so we know that this proverb is true from our own experience, right? We know that uh, when we have a babysitter uh, over when we were kids instead of our own parents, we tended to push, push bedtime a little bit later. Uh, when we had a substitute teacher in school, we certainly took advantage of those opportunities uh, as kids. When our coaches weren't looking, we tended to run laps a little bit slower, right? We didn't push quite as hard. Uh, it's just a truth about human nature. When the boss is out, uh, people tend to work less hard. It's just uh, part of what we do because we take advantage of the cat being away. Uh, so this is human nature, uh, but, but human nature is the problem in our world, right? Ever since the Garden of Eden, since uh, sin and death entered the world uh, with the first sin, uh, human nature has been corrupted. And we know the difference between right and wrong, and yet we want to sin. And then we do sin because of our sin nature. And for many people, there are only two things holding us back, right? The first thing is our conscience. Uh, just how bad is this thing that I'm thinking about doing? Uh, and, you know, where is my morality? What are my values? Uh, you know, just how bad is this thing uh, that we're, we're de deciding whether to do? And then we'll let our, our morality and values determine whether we'll do it. So that's the first regulator. The second regulator is, can I get away with it? That's the, probably the most important one, right? So uh, should I do it? Should I not do it? Well, if I should do it, can I get away with it? Uh, and so let's say uh, you're a teenager. I wouldn't know anything about this, but, but let's say you're a teenager and, and your parents give strict instructions uh, because they're going away for the weekend. No guests, no girlfriends, no friends, no parties in the house while we're gone. But then as soon as they leave, the calculations begin, right? Uh, well, what about five people? Well, they said none, but what about five? What about 15? What about 50? Uh, so can I get away with that? Are there any nosy neighbors who are going to rat me out? Can, can I get the house cleaned up in time? Uh, these are all things that go into our calculations. Well, uh, my brother uh, once uh, had a spectacular fail uh, doing these calculations. Uh, <laughs> he decided to have the party. Uh, but he didn't take into account the fact that my mother's camera was left on the countertop, and so the people at the party took pictures using my mother's camera. <laughs> These were the, in the days of film, of course, so when the camera's film was expired, my mother took the film to the drugstore, and there she was, seeing the party, as if she were an invited guest. <laughs> so my brother got busted. <laughs> But when we want to sin and we do these calculations, we figure out, can we do it and can we get away with it? Uh, these are, for most people, only, the only two calculations that come into uh, our thought processes because when the cat's away, the mice will play. Now, for us Christians, we have a third regulator, right? We have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who lives inside of us and helps us say no to sin. Uh, and we need him because 
even believers want to sin sometimes, right? Paul said it himself in Romans chapter 7, the, the good I want to do, this I don't do, the evil I don't want to do, this is what I do. And so we will battle this sin nature that we have until we die. And we see this in full technicolor in Nehemiah chapter 13. In Nehemiah 13, we don't get the happy ending that, that we would really like to have after such a glorious book of rebuilding the walls and casting out enemies and uh, reinstituting some of the reforms that Nehemiah did. It would have been awesome if the people kept their covenants that they had made and, and uh, the story ended happily ever after. Uh, but that's not what happened. Uh, the people reverted back to their old ways. And it's because of this sin nature that we all possess. Now, Nehemiah is the cat in my analogy, of course. Now, he'd been away. Uh, he'd spent 12 years in Jerusalem uh, rebuilding the wall and instituting reforms uh, that we've been talking about for the past several weeks, but uh, he had to go back and attend to his duties in uh, Susa in Persia uh, with King Artaxerxes. And so uh, after he left, uh, the Jews failed repeatedly in supporting the temple, in paying tithes, in keeping the Sabbath, and in maintaining Jewish purity among the pagans, as soon as the cat went away, the mice began to play. And so let's just watch in this chapter how quickly their obedience deteriorates uh, from the high points, the mountaintop of chapter 12 uh, and the first few verses of chapter 13, uh, into abandonment of God's commandments and then uh, breaking all the vows that they had made back in Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, so first, they separate from the foreigners. This is a good high point. Uh, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud as the people listened, and there was found in it that no Ammonite or Moabite was ever to enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all the foreigners from Israel." Well, it's hard to tell from looking at this whether on that day means on the day that they dedicated the wall where chapter 12 ended, or if it just means on that day, uh, generally speaking, uh, in that day, another way to translate it. So uh, either way, though, uh, during this time, uh, they, had, um, they, were, they were reading the law, and they learned from, from reading the law that no Ammonite or Moabite was allowed to assemble with them. Uh, and that was probably because what was read to them was from Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, which says that no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly even to the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharaim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord God loves you. So Nehemiah, uh, in, this, in Nehemiah 13, we see it coming straight out of Deuteronomy uh, what they are advising them to do with regard to the Ammonites and the Moabites. So this passage now refers back to uh, events of chapter uh, 22 to 25 in the book of Numbers, where they hired a Balaam to pronounce a curse against Israel. Uh, and so they wouldn't let them pass through the land on their way to the promised land. And so uh, now God is upset with them, and God commands them through Moses not to allow any of the, of the Ammonites or the Moabites into their assembly. So in chapter 13 here, uh, Israel casts them out. They won't allow them into their assembly, which is to maintain the heritage, the, the, the purity of the Jewish heritage, which, of course, is, is an important thing. Uh, that purity was essential to their survival because if they failed to keep it, they would be diluted. Uh, they would become integrated and eventually absorbed into and among the Gentile people. Now, as an aside, 
Uh, you may remember that Ruth was from Moab, right? Ruth was a Moabitess, uh, but she was accepted into Israel. So, so what gives here? Well, what gives is that Ruth was obedient, right? Ruth loved the Lord. He, she told Naomi, I will worship your God. If your God, I will worship. And so uh, she was accepted in, but if an Ammonite or a Moabite came in who also had the same attitude as Ruth, they would be accepted in as well. But if they continued to maintain their own pagan gods and, and were opponents of Israel, then they would be rejected. So it's all about faith and obedience, whether you're Ammonite or Israelite. Uh, but here in chapter 13, we see that it's the public reading of Scripture. Again, as we've seen throughout, uh, since Ezra started reading the law back in chapter 8, Ezra reads the law. The people understand. They, they know that they have to respond. They learn. They apply it to their lives with obedience. And so they follow the law, and they cast out these pagans who wouldn't convert among them. And now, sadly, as verse 3 ends, this is like the last mountain peak in the book of Nehemiah. From here, it's a, an avalanche, a, a slide down into the valley where the book sadly ends. So we'll see their behavior start to deteriorate in verses 4 through 9. Now, prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where previously they used to put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and the oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had come to the king. After some time, however, I requested a leave of absence from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had committed for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courtyards of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household articles out of the room, and then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned the utensils of the house of God there with the grain offering and the frankincense. Well, it's a little difficult to follow the chronology and timeline here. The verse 4 says prior to this, and so we ask, well, prior to what? We're not exactly sure what that means, but it seems that Eliashib had appointed or had been appointed over the, the storerooms, the temple chambers, uh, even before Nehemiah uh, had completed his reforms. And then Nehemiah returned to uh, Susa, to Persia, after verse 3, and after Eliashib had been appointed over the storerooms of the, the temples, and then after Nehemiah was gone, then Eliashib allowed this Tobiah uh, to move into one of the storerooms of the temple where the grain offerings were supposed to be kept. So from a chronology standpoint, here's what we know. The 20th year of Artaxerxes was 445 BC. That's when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem the first time. Then in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, 12 years had expired. Now, uh, for, that should say 433 B.C., not 443 B.C., Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem to return back to Artaxerxes. And then at a point in time later, a couple years later, an unknown amount of time, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and he sees all this apostasy, uh, apostasy that had happened in the years that he had been back in uh, Persia. So once he left, Eliashib does this very wicked thing. He allows uh, Tobiah to move back into the temple. Now, uh, this is really an abomination. I mean, Tobiah had proven himself all throughout the rebuilding of the walls and the temple to be an enemy of Israel. And so Nehemiah, or, uh, Eliashib allows the fox right back into the hen house, right? Putting him in the temple building itself. And even worse than that, 
uh, Tobiah was an Ammonite. Uh, he's, he's among the people that they just separated from because of their impurity. And it seems that because Eliashib was related to Tobiah uh, through marriage, there were in-laws, uh, that this was allowed, even though the Jews had just separated themselves. So here comes uh, Tobiah, the enemy of the Jews, and an Ammonite who moves right into the temple building itself. I mean, that is clearly an abomination, and Nehemiah was horrified. Now, remember back in Nehemiah chapter 10, we said that uh, after Ezra read the law, in chapters 9 and 10, the Israelites did three things. They confessed their sin, they confessed the greatness of God, and then they recommitted to keep the law of Moses. And so here, not supporting the temple ministry is the first of four specific vows that they made in Nehemiah chapter 10, recommitting themselves to God, that they break here in Nehemiah chapter 13. So here's the first vow that they break. In Nehemiah chapter 1039, they said, the people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well, they did neglect the house of, of their God. The storehouses should have been full. There should have been no room in the temple for Tobiah because those rooms should have been filled with grain and new wine and olive oil. Uh, so the Israelites, instead, they grew complacent. Uh, Nehemiah had left, and the, the mice, they began to play. And so they neglected to support the temple, which is why there was room in the temple storehouses for Tobiah to begin with. Now, you may remember... Uh, Malachi, the last of Israel's prophets who prophesied around Nehemiah's time, uh, also railed against Israel for failure to keep its covenant to pay tithes. And so what, ne uh, what uh, Malachi says is this. This is God speaking. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Answer, in your tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room in it to store it. So again, their storehouses should have been filled with grain, uh, but they were not filled with grain. And so Nehemiah responds by evicting Tobiah from the temple and cleansing it uh, using the... Um, uh, Israelites to uh, the, the Levites to cleanse this, these rooms again so they could be used for their proper purposes again. But as we're going to see throughout chapter 13, this is Nehemiah like trying to bail out a sinking ship with a teacup. Uh, he just couldn't keep up with all of the sins and all of the broken vows. Uh, so the next covenant that they broke was related to their tithes. And this is verses 10 to 14. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I, I reprimanded the officials and said, Why has the house of God been neglected? Then I gathered them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. To be in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah from the Levites, and in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, my God, and do not wipe out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its servants' services. So here's the second vow that they broke. 
This is from Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the, store, or to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. So they vow this specifically, and then immediately after Nehemiah is gone, they break it. They fail to bring their tithes to the Levites. And so the Levites and the singers now have to go back to their land to work their land to support themselves because the people weren't supporting them as they had pledged to do. And so Nehemiah again fixes this situation. He reprimanded the officials. He regathered them to their posts. He made all of Judah bring their tithes to the storehouse. And then he appointed trustworthy people to oversee the storehouses uh, and guard them. And now here for the first of three times in the chapter, Nehemiah says, remember me, O my God. And so I'll talk more about that at the end. Uh, the next covenant that they violated concerned the keeping of the Sabbath. And this is verses 15 to 22. In those days, I saw in Judah people who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and every kind of load. And they were bringing them into the Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, the people of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did your fathers not do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath against Israel by profaning on the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it became dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered that the doors be shut and that they were not to open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I ordered the Levites that they were to purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your mercy. So they failed to keep the Sabbath, and this breaks a third vow that they had made in Nehemiah chapter 10. Verse 31, that says, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any other holy day. A time after time, as you notice how many times uh, in the verses that I read, 15 to 22, that it says, on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah is appalled by what he's seeing. The people make this vow in 1031 and, and not very much longer. They're doing exactly the opposite of what they promised not to do on the Sabbath. And so they're doing all kinds of work. They're trading with foreigners. The people of Tyre lived northwest of Jerusalem. And they had learned that if they came down and they hung outside the walls at night, the Jews would sneak outside and they'd do business with them, violating the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah reminded them that one of the reasons that God had judged them in the past was for this very reason, that they were not keeping the Sabbath. 
And so Nehemiah now fixes the problem by ordering the gates shut, by threatening violence against any merchants who are coming from outside, uh, hanging out outside the wall, hoping that Jews would come out to do business with them. And Nehemiah ordered the Levites to purify themselves and sanctify the Sabbath day. And he again asked God to remember him according to the greatness of his mercy. Now, if all this wasn't bad enough, there's still one more covenant that they are going to violate here, and that's regarding their mixed marriages. So we'll look at this uh, in verses 23 through 31. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them knew how to speak the language of Judah, but only the language of his own people. So I quarreled with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take any of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did Solomon the king of Israel not sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him and he was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Yet the foreign women caused even him to sin. Has it not been reported about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our great God, by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib the high priest, became a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I chased him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned duties to the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I arranged for the delivery of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, for good. So the fourth covenant that they violate from Nehemiah chapter 10, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, you can just imagine Nehemiah, right? He comes back after these not too long, a few years away to see uh, just the debauchery that's going on uh, around him, uh, among the people. Where are the leaders? Who, who's standing up to, to, to make them do what Nehemiah had taught them to do? Now, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend Nehemiah's way of dealing with the problem, pulling out their hair, ripping off their beards, but, you know, I understand the, the level of frustration, right? must have been unbelievable. Uh, their children no longer spoke Hebrew. They were speaking a dialect of the Gentile nations, and their intermarriage threatened uh, their religious integrity, their cultural survival, and, and even risked leading them away from God. Uh, using Solomon as an example, this man, the, the wisest man on earth, uh, married pagan wives, and they had the power to lead even the wisest men, uh, man on earth away from uh, the Lord. And so it was a very serious situation, and so Nehemiah felt justified in and I can't even picture it. He jumps on their heads and starts pulling out their hair saying, stop doing this, stop doing this to deal with the problem. So Nehemiah's solution is just to, to try to purify them in any way possible he can from everything foreign uh, to establish Levite leadership and reinstitute the tithes. So again, we can just imagine how exasperated uh, Nehemiah must have been, uh, after all of his effort, after all of his years, all he had done uh, to try to uh, build up the people, to edify them, to not only to, to build up the walls and the temple, uh, but then to, to recommit themselves to proper worship of the Lord. And this is what they do. The, the people had become, rather than be transformed, they had become, become conformed to the world all around them. So how Nehemiah's heart must have hurt 
And one principle we learn here is that you can teach people to obey you, right? But, but you can't change their hearts necessarily. You can make them obey you through fear or force, but you cannot change their hearts. This is what Jesus was talking about the entire Sermon on the Mount, right? He was talking about, uh, you have heard it said, uh, for example, do not murder. But I say, uh, if you even harbor evil thoughts, you've committed the sin. So Jesus is talking about the external, uh, but he wants to work on the internal. And that's what Nehemiah wanted to do, but he just was unable to do it. You, you can make people obey out of fear or force, but you cannot change their hearts. And so how disappointing for Nehemiah to find that the Israelites really were spiritually unchanged, even though while he was there, they had been obedient. Now, Nehemiah's last plea here is that God remember him for good. Now, this is the third time in the chapter that Nehemiah prays a prayer like this. And certainly uh, he wants God to remember his good deeds, uh, you know, remember that, that he had been a man of faith, uh, but it's much more than that. It's much more than just being remembered for good deeds. Uh, so let's just look at these prayers quickly one more time. Verse 14, Remember me for this, my God, and do not wipe out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Verse 22, For this also remember me, my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your mercy. And verse 31, Remember me, my God, for good. I started out by calling this message, Is There Any Hope? You know, despite Israel's sin and despite our sin, there is hope. Verse 22 specifically is Nehemiah's acknowledgement that, that it's God's mercy that saves. It's not our works that save. Uh, Nehemiah's works were in response to his faith. He had faith in God, like Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Nehemiah too believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The works that he did after were uh, a proof of his faith, uh, not anything that was going to get him into heaven. So Nehemiah had this faith, and, it was, and he showed it by his works. He was a leader of men. He's one of the best examples of a spiritual leader and a man of God in the Bible. But he couldn't save his people, right? Nehemiah can't save them. He can't change their hearts. Uh, and so all he could do was pray and seek the Lord's wisdom. And he did do that, and he stood against God's enemies, and he, he rebuilt the wall, and he instituted all of these reforms designed to teach the people and make them more godlike and then teach them how to worship God properly. But Nehemiah was a sinner, and the people were sinners, and we are sinners. And so that's why, in faith, Nehemiah throws himself on the mercy of God and says, Lord, remember me according to the greatness of your mercy, not based on my good works, but based on your mercy. And so this is salvation, right? We understand that, that we are saved by faith. Uh, and Nehemiah understood that he was saved by faith. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We still sin because we have a sin nature and we want to sin. And so because heaven is a perfect place, we can't get into it while we still carry this weight of our sin. Uh, the guilt of our sin. And so the two things that all humans have in common is the fact that we have a sin nature and we need a savior. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us, as well as any other book in the Bible, uh, our relentless desire to pursue sin. It's what we do. Now, they lived before Jesus, right? And so they showed their faith by keeping the law uh, and looking forward to God's fulfillment of his promises through Jesus Christ. Now, on our side of the cross, uh, we look back to Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ, who's 100% God, 100% man, who came to earth, 
lived in the form of a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died on a cross in our place uh, for our sins uh, to pay the penalty that we deserved to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, God forgives our sin and he allows us into heaven. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. Is there any hope? Yes, there is hope. It's hope in Jesus Christ. Well, we spent the last, I don't know, four or five months now in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What do you think about them? Did they succeed or did they fail? Were they successes or were they failures? They instituted reforms. They led the people. They rebuilt the temple. Uh, and, and so it, they did lots of things that, that would lead you to say, yes, they were very successful. But short-term success did not equal long-term success, right? The people long-term were not changed. Uh, Ezra had dissolved the marriages just a few years earlier, right? And now Nehemiah has to come and do it again. Uh, none of their reforms lasted. They all had short-term effect, but no long-term effect. And they prayed for independence from their enemies, remember that? And they never gained that independence from their enemies because of their continued disobedience. So what do you think, success or failure? Uh, you could look at it both ways, but in looking at it both ways, we'd be measuring them from human standpoints, right? And so I would propose that we close with a couple of applications about God's measure of justice, how God sees justice and righteousness, and look at it from his perspective rather than from human judgment. So here's the first way. God will not judge us by our success, but by our faithfulness. Now, whether you view Nehemiah and Ezra's ministries as successes or failures, that's human evaluation. God judges us by faithfulness. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah did plenty of good works as a result of their faith, but in the end, they could only be responsible for their own faith, what they believed and how they acted in accordance with their faith. So they were faithful, even if they weren't as successful as they might, not, might have liked to be in terms of their ministries, uh, they were men of faith. And so God is looking for us to be men and women of faith too. Will we live his way? Will we obey his commandments? Will we trust him in times of hardship? Will we follow him if he calls us into deeper and harder ministry? I remember a few years ago when Molly and I thought the world was collapsing on us, and in many ways it was, and we cried out to God for help, and, and God was long answering it. And all we can do in those difficult times is, is to walk in faith and wait on God's timing. And I know each one of you could tell your own stories about God being faithful in dark times, even though it seems that we're not necessarily being successful. As long as we're being faithful, uh, trusting God, obeying God, that is God's measure of success. And so uh, Noah built an ark and preached for 120 years without making a single convert, right? Moses, how'd he do with the Jews in the wilderness, right? Didn't have a whole lot of success there. Isaiah, you'll go preach. How long, Lord? Well, forever and ever, and you might not make a single convert. Uh, it's not success based on human standards, not how many converts, how many scalps, right? It's were you faithful? Were you faithful? That is how God measures success. Faith and obedience, not necessarily results. So God will judge us, not judge us by our success, but by our faithfulness. And God will judge us not guilty because of Jesus's faithfulness. We are sinful, fallen people. And, and like Nehemiah, we are not worthy of God's grace and mercy. But we get it, right? We get God's mercy and grace when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we believe in him for salvation, uh, when we trust Jesus who faithfully went to the cross in our place. 
And so when we do that, God welcomes us into his family and he says, welcome, welcome. I love you. Despite your sin, uh, you are welcome in my family because you have received my son. Now, unbelievers tend to think that there is no God and, and that he'll never judge sin. Uh, they're just not afraid of him. They treat God like he's the cat's away. So he, he's the one, so they're going to play while the cat's away. But God is patient. He loves us. He doesn't want anyone uh, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But someday he will judge. And for, for all of us, he knows every thought that we have. He knows every attitude of our hearts. And so we can't hide from him, but we can hide ourselves in him. And that's what we do when we place our faith in him. When we believe in Jesus Christ, our sins are covered. They're hidden by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God doesn't see us in our sin anymore. He sees Jesus Christ in all of his glory. So there is hope. There is hope despite our sinful nature and despite our sin. But there's only one hope, and it's in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you for Nehemiah uh, and Ezra. Uh, Lord, we just can repeatedly see ourselves in these books. Uh, we can be faithful, Lord, and then we drift and we fall into sin. And then we come back and you welcome us with open arms and then we fall back into sin patterns again, Lord. And uh, yet you are just so gracious and so loving to continue to receive us back in spite of our sin, Lord. And we know that you can only do that on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord. And so we are so thankful for him. Lord, we just lift our, our hearts in praise for him. We give him all glory and honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.